1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, he set in motion what would come to be known as the Protestant Reformation, and we are committed to that Reformation. What was it ultimately about? I'll never forget sitting in a staff meeting at a church where I used to be on staff. I'd been there a couple of years. By God's grace, I'd been able to exercise some influence on a handful of folks, a couple of staff members, in fact, who had come to love the Word of God, despite the fact that the Word of God was but a footnote there. And the announcement at the beginning of that staff retreat was, let it be known, we are not a Reformed church. Now, that was directed at me, although the person wasn't looking at me when he said it, me and a few others on staff. And I wanted to say, so we're Roman Catholic. And of course, I wanted to say that because the purpose of the Reformation was to restore the church to the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther was not about producing a movement. He was calling the church back to Scripture. That's what the Reformation was about. So nailing his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg wasn't as dramatic as it sounds to us. If someone were to nail some sort of statement to our door, the glass would break and it would be a real problem. In their day, that was kind of common. It was a public bulletin board. It was the contents of the statement that created spiritual ripples really throughout the world. What Martin Luther, again, was intending to do was to call the church back to the only source by which we understand what it means to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther made this statement at the Diet of Worms where he was really on trial for what he was trying to do. He says, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. Uh, this was in response to their insistence that he either recant or he explain what he's going to do about what he has said. He said, I will answer without horns or without teeth. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, end quote. You've heard this quote probably a number of times. The reason Luther includes the matter of conscience there is that the conscience is the, the vehicle, the venue by which the Lord uses you either to glorify himself or to show that you don't. Your conscience is your friend insofar as you rightly educate your conscience, it is the dumbing down or the searing of the conscience that leads people to be turned over to a debased mind. The conscience continues to prick and prick and prick, and the person continues to resist and resist and resist. They hear the Word of God, they reject it. Dominic did a great job yesterday in our series in systematic theology uh, regarding the matter of man and sin, explaining what it is to have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Ultimately, it is to have heard the truth of the gospel from God so clearly, so plainly, so many times, and to have rejected it so many times that God no longer strives with that person. It could very well be possible that someone in that condition is in our midst. We don't know. I personally would never choose to come to that conclusion about someone because I simply can't know. But it certainly is true. Uh, John, in 1 John, talks about sin that doesn't lead to death. But there are those who commit sin that leads to death, and it's the unforgivable sin. Luther said, I can't go against my conscience because his conscience was informed by Scripture. So his, his comment, I love this, was that it's neither right nor safe. The core issues in the Reformation were what the Reformers came to refer to as the five solas. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. Let's walk through them just a little bit. We don't have time to do so comprehensively, but I encourage you to know the five solas. 
The five solas, if you will, were the bridge by which the reformers, under the providential, spirit-filled work of God himself, restored the church to truth, the truth of Scripture. Now, there are those today who would say, well, you're not reformed because you don't believe in fill in the blank. And they're showing the fact that they are unaware or ignoring what the Reformation was actually about. Some would say, we're not reformed because we don't engage in infant baptism. Our Presbyterian brothers would say that about us. You're not reformed because you're not covenantal. Others would say, you're not reformed because you don't believe that Sunday is the new Saturday, or you don't believe that Jesus shows up more during the Lord's table. They show their ignorance with regard to the fact that the Reformation had nothing to do with those issues. But they, in their Reformed Baptist over-tightly wound disposition, are willing to reject brothers in Christ as not being Reformed. The Reformation was about the sufficiency of Scripture and soteriology. What does the Bible say about what it means to be a Christian? That's what the Reformation was and is about. And sadly, there are those who like to split hairs over other issues and separate themselves from true believers. Bottom line, and this is the topic of our time together today, bottom line foundational issue was Scripture alone. The common Roman Catholic disposition, let's do everything we can possibly do to keep the Bible out of people's hands. Prior to the Reformation, people were executed, they were imprisoned, they were decapitated, they were stretched uh, until they were ripped apart for believing in the Bible. And people who attempted to produce translations of the Bible were swiftly executed. A number of men, as you know, were burned at the stake. Uh, that would have happened to Luther had it not been for a prince who protected him. So the first of the five souls, again, is Scripture alone. The Latin expression of this is sola scriptura. This simply speaks of the alone authority, that our exclusive authority is the Word and the Word itself, not your premonitions, not your feelings, not your interpretations, none of that. It's the Bible and the Bible alone. Number two, Christ alone, solus Christus. He is the singular, exclusive source of our salvation. He and his work. Not your works. And as you know, there is residual Roman Catholic theology in the teachings of Jacobius Arminius, which is why you frequently hear me explaining the erroneous teachings of that man. Third, by grace alone, sola gratia. Again, it's not by works. It is God's grace. It's God's free granting of the gift of salvation, granting of belief, granting of repentance. It's God's work. It's God's work. Fourth, faith alone or sola fide. Faith alone. What's your involvement? It's belief. But even as we pointed out, Paul in Philippians indicates that belief is a gift. But you do it, right? You do believe, right? Didn't you believe that moment you believed? You were exercising your will. Fifth, God's glory alone, soli deo gloria. Some of you get an email from you know, certain friends who have really been moved by the realities of the truths of the Reformation, and so their email closes with soli deo gloria. It's kind of cool. Just a reminder that it's all about God's glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about whether or not we can get along. It's not about us when we do get along. It is about God's glory. So that's ultimately what the call of the Reformation was. Now, similarly to when someone says, I don't believe in Calvinism because I don't believe in the teachings of John Calvin, he shows that he doesn't know what Calvinism is. In the same way, when someone says, how can five things all be alone? He shows that he doesn't understand what the five solas are. Our time together this morning should result in a deeper dependence upon and conviction in regard to the sufficiency of Scripture. When we talk about sola scriptura, we're really talking about the reality that the Bible is, in fact, enough. And so, in your bulletin... We have uh, chosen to call today's message just that. Your Bible is exactly 
enough. We're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. We're talking about the Bible's power. Is it enough for the pastor who desires to care for the flock of God? Buckle in. You're going to be stunned with some of the things I'm about to tell you. In a recent study by Ligonier Ministries entitled The State of Theology, these findings are remarkably troubling. Listen to this. In this study, in response to this statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 52% of evangelicals agree. 52%. Everybody sins, but people are good by nature. Regarding this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51%. God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. 91% agree. Now, why is that troubling? Because we're talking about people that are apparently truly evangelical, people that understand. Salvation is, in fact, in Christ alone. We're not talking about Roman Catholics. We're not talking about Muslims. Regarding this statement, there is one true God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 97% agree. We're talking about Trinitarians. But this statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78% agree with that statement. That makes 78% at least of the people surveyed unbelievers. False converts believe Jesus is a created being. They believe what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Is this shocking? Evangelicals were defined as people who strongly agreed with the following four statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. You know, someone made that statement to you uh, at the workplace, you would say, oh, we're on the same page. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the second statement, defining those who are called evangelical in this survey. The third statement, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. You're thinking, we're in agreement. These are truly evangelicals. The fourth statement, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. And yet, only 31% agree with this statement. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 69% disagree with that statement. Worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regular attending church. 58% agree with that statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 60% agree with that. It's postmodernism. No absolutes. It's all about what you decide. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 32% agree. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 44% agree. Abortion is a sin. 38% agree. 62% disagree. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. 62% agree. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 53% agree. God is unconcerned with my day-to-day -day decisions. 36% agree. Sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. Only 54% agree. And, and this, and this probably won't surprise you, gender identity is a matter of choice. 
46% agree. You decide whether you're male or female or whatever. Why? (laughs) How is this possible? Biblical illiteracy, biblical apathy, and biblical rejection. I've told you a number of times about Andy Stanley. He's a well-known, popular American pastor. Recently said you need to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. You need to abandon the Old Testament just do away with it. It's outdated. It's outdated. And his real purpose, his real focus, his purpose statement is the idea that Christianity is about the resurrection, not about revelation. So, so long as you can get the right information about the resurrection and bypass the message, bypass the truth, the objective truth of the Bible, and you have the information about the resurrection, you have what you need to know, but you don't. You don't. Because the only trustworthy source regarding the resurrection is revelation. Paul says to us, the word of God is profitable. It's profitable for every work of the man of God. Hebrews 1.1 says about Jesus, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. But he left. He departed. And he made it abundantly clear that it was best for him to depart so that the helper would come. He said, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Back to Hebrews for a minute. What does the Lord tell us in Hebrews 4.12? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I was so thrilled to hear Zioli and Becca speak this morning when Zioli described those moments, not just at Camp Regen, but in ministry in general, when someone is willing to lay their heart bare before you and make statements like, I don't know that I believe in the resurrection. Or I'm not sure if... There's truly any hope for me. I see the doctrine of election in the Bible. What if I'm not of the elect? It is the powerful reality of the word of God that it separates soul from spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It rightly judges the mind of man, and the mind of man does not rightly judge the mind of man. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And what Paul is referring to here, what he's talking about here is man-made systems, man-made philosophies, systems of thought. Psychology in particular is really the most prevalent and you know, the greatest, maybe the greatest work of our day uh, that Satan has accomplished is to confuse people and to think that psychology is compatible with Christianity. And so you have this amazing oxymoron called Christian psychology. And any five-minute effort to take a look at what psychology is would help you see plainly that it is completely opposed to the truths that the Bible speaks of. But this is why there's one of the reasons why there's a lot of confusion in the church, because there are those who have abdicated their responsibility to do sound exegesis and to teach sound exposition and to abdicate the responsibility for people's better good to send them to a professional. You know, people who have studied the mind of man. When we have everything pertaining to life and godliness and the true knowledge of him in his word. But I want to ask you, I have a question for you. And you need to be really honest about this. 
It's critical that you, in your ministry to your family, in your ministry to people in our church, in your ministry to the lost, your ministry to your extended family, that you are seriously honest about the answer to the question, what is the source of your hope? And of course, we would all quickly say, well, it's the Bible and the Bible alone. But I suggest that there are probably residual leanings in your heart, in your mind, that take you back even to astrology. I, you do too. We see things on Facebook that make, make us say, did they really post that? You know, a person who claims to trust the Bible? I suggest that it would be a, a, a legitimately helpful exercise for you and me regularly to ask the question, do I legitimately run everything through the grid of Scripture? Are there times where I'm saying things because it simply reflects what somebody told me long ago or what I chose to believe, you know, some novel I read or some movie that I saw? I want to ask you to stand and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Stand for a moment if you would. And I'd like for us to read this aloud together, and whether you have the NAS or the ESV or the King James or whatever it might be, I want you to read aloud. So it's not going to be in sync. That's okay. It's all the Word of God. Unless, of course, you have you know, one of those versions, and I'm sure you don't. But let's read it aloud together, shall we? 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And I want to ask you to stand for just a few minutes after we, we read. Are you ready? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe what you just read? I mean, do you really believe it? Are you convinced when you think of me and other men in our church, other pastors, throughout the world, whom you believe to be faithfully devoted to the Word of God, are you completely convinced that the Bible and the Bible alone is exclusively and exactly enough for that man to be equipped to best minister to the people of God? How about you in your ministries? How about you in your instruction of and your influence upon your family? Do you find yourself at times perhaps fearing man rather than God and turning to something that might better soothe in the moment the person that you're attempting to minister to? Do you believe that this is not some great man-made document that's simply approved by God, but that it is in fact God-breathed? Beloved, this book is from him. It's from him. It's from his very heart and delivered through his mouth. And now that you've read it aloud, ask yourself, do I believe what the Bible says about itself? This is what God has said about his word. Do I truly believe it? Before you're seated, please pray with me. Father, in the short time that we have, we ask that you would do an immensely effective work in our hearts that would result in a massive removal and extraction of those things that are truly lofty thoughts brought up against you, that we would be engaging in that spiritual warfare that Paul calls us to in 2 Corinthians 10 to destroy those thoughts, knowing, Father, that they're not glorifying to you. They're certainly not best for those to whom we would hope to minister, and they're not even good for us in our sanctification, and probably lead us to some measure of idolatry. Lord, help us to see those things exactly as you see them, and to drink down voraciously the pure milk of the Word that we, even as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 has called us to, no longer be dull of hearing, but to be capable of eating solid meat, that we would be teachers of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
This morning we'll examine Paul's words to young Pastor Timothy that the very breathed word of God is sufficient to adequately prepare the pastor for every work of ministry so that we will obey Scripture alone. Paul's words here to Pastor Timothy are in many senses the basis of what we understand to be the Christian Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Neither Paul nor anyone else, not Jesus, not Moses, not Peter, says this about anything else other than the Word of God, that it is profitable. They don't say that about anything else. And it is, in fact, to the exclusion of all other resources that the Word of God is sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, I want to give this caveat because if you're not thinking it, you eventually will. What about those good books that we often recommend? What about, how about this, lexical resources that help us to understand the languages? Todd, are you saying that the Bible and the Bible alone is the only thing that we should put our hands on? Absolutely not. That would be foolhardy. That would be absolutely foolhardy. Your English translation of the Bible comes from those who endeavored to faithfully translate from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. So to simply say, all I need is my English translation, is not true. There was a guy years ago in a Bible study that I used to teach, one of those guys that would pop in every few months, express his knowledge of everything, and then move on and come back a few months later. And he would come in every time and he would say, the New American Standard, that's what I believe in, the New American Standard. And I said, hey, that's what I used too. Back then, that was kind of my standard translation. I've switched to the ESV now. But the New American Standard is, is immensely faithful. But I would ask him every time he came, every time he would say that, why? Because it's the Word of God. And I would say, well, why do you think that? Because it is. And you know how the conversation went thereafter. And so ultimately he makes himself the standard of truth when he has no ability to explain how we got the manuscripts that led to the faithful translation of the NAS. It's one of the reasons for which I am deeply grateful for the Master's Seminary who trained me in the jots and tittles of those things. I can confidently defend the Bible insofar as how we got it from God and how it was passed down from generation to generation in a faithful way that we can trust today what we hold in our hands. A pastor needs to know those things. And so often someone simply says, well, I just believe the version I believe. Okay, so... What do I do? Just believe what you believe because you believe it? No, there needs to be legitimate understanding of the manuscripts to really trust that the copy that you hold is, in fact, trustworthy. In all that we do, it's critical to ask, what did Jesus ask us to do? What is the Great Commission? We're to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because as he has just explained immediately prior to that, he has all authority. It's his moment of reminder. It's the moment of truth where Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go making disciples, baptizing all men, teaching them to do what? Obey my every word. And so there's reminiscence of this in our passage this morning, is there not? Paul knows Jesus said that. Paul knows when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for every good work of the man of God. Paul knows that the Word of God is the Word of Christ, and we're to obey every command From him. Well, to that end, I want you to understand that God's word is exactly enough for equipping the pastor for every work of ministry. As you see there in your Bible, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Where Paul says, All scripture, the best way to think of what Paul is referring to here is that the scripture is eternal. Psalm 119, verse 89, 
says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, forever in eternity future and forever in eternity past. You say, well, well, wait a minute, but the Bible records things that happened in time, space, and history. That's the human and true perspective that we have on the recording, the dissemination of God's word. But the word of God is what it is in eternity past. It's not new in that sense. It is from God, and God is eternal. And what God has communicated is true. Even when God records the narrative record of historical events, it's true in eternity past. One of the reasons we can rest in its truth is that God has decreed that all things would come to pass. So God has recorded his sacred word outside of time. There's a sense in which you could say that it never happened. It just is true that it is recorded in eternity past. It's forever preserved in heaven. If you go with me just two verses prior to our text this morning, verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Don't you want to get a hold of Andy Stanley's email and send him that? Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament? It's what Timothy grew up on. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. The sacred writings that you and your mother and your grandmother spent so much time meditating on and memorizing and singing and teaching and resting in and finding joy in. And Andy Stanley's saying, do away with that. The thing of the past. All scripture is God breathed. It's God spoken. God breathed it. Theonustos. You know Thea. Theos. That's God. Nustos from Numa is the word breath or spirit. God breathed. Think of it that way. One lexicon defines it as meaning produced by the Spirit of God or understood as the air that was physically expelled out of the lungs of God, end quote. It says, if God has lungs, this is an anthropomorphic way of attributing God's word to God as you would attribute any man's words to that man. Just as I'm standing here speaking words to you this very moment by the physical passing of air from my lungs over my vocal cords, out of my lips. God spoke from his heart to men. And Paul says, it's profitable. There's no chaff. So we're saying here that what God has breathed out, what he has said, that which has come from him, his word, and that it alone is profitable. It's useful. It's lucrative. It's valuable. It's sufficient. It is perfectly sufficient. It is exactly enough. It's not more than enough. I don't know what that means. Hear people say that? Oh, it's more than enough. I think that stretches things into the realm of fantasy land. It doesn't need to be more than enough. It's exactly enough. Why would it need to be more than enough? Again, I'm not sure what that means. But what Paul is saying is that it's precisely enough. He's not saying it's more than enough. He's saying it's exactly enough. In the same way that you might put on a pair of socks that fit just right, you wouldn't say, man, these socks fit more than enough. That might mean they're too tight. If they fit just right, or if you put a glove on your, your hand and it's just right, it's exactly what you were looking for, you, you wouldn't say, these gloves are better than just right. You would say, they're just right. The Word of God, it's just right. It's just right. Scripture is just right for the pastor to be effectively ready to shepherd sheep unto maturity, and nothing else is. 
And I hear that someone has embraced a man-made label and applied it to someone else. I can be confident he has zero confidence in the Word of God, no matter how much he talks about it. He's abdicated the responsibility to understand the condition of man to man. He has rejected the veracity of Scripture. Now, here's a great example in the Scripture of what it looks like in a person's life who legitimately depends upon, is ruminated in, he's saturated by the Word of God. Turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a great example of what this ought to look like in your life and in my life. Second Peter 1, verse 3. We love this passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In a nutshell, Peter is saying here that you have divine power. You have essentially spiritual dynamite by which to experience the greatest riches of the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, that you would become partakers of his divine nature, no longer eternally and condemnably affected by the corrupt nature reflective in your sinful desire. The context of this passage, this passage that tells us we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, the context of this passage, this chapter, is about the Word of God. Go with me to verse 19. And before we start reading, look back just for a second at verse 16, and that's where Peter recalls his amazing, singular, exclusive experience with the Lord's transfiguration that nobody else in history has ever experienced, right? Except he and Moses and Elijah. It's Jesus' transfiguration of his body into the glorified state. We can't imagine what all that means, but we can imagine that there would be no greater experience ever possibly imagined to mankind. And what does he do with that? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't say, people, this euphoric experience, you've got to have it. You've got to have this wonderful feeling. It's the, the emotion. I can't explain it. It was amazing. You, you need to experience it. No, he speaks of it, and then there's a period. And he says then in verse 19, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It is as if he is saying, that was amazing, but this is better. You have the word, the more sure. Now, why does he say more sure? Because it's objective. Peter's recollection of his experience is remembered through the grid of a weak, frail, faulty human named Peter. He probably doesn't even remember it exactly rightly. But the word of God is more Sure. It's more sure. No prophecy, he says, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Back up to verse 19 again, he says, To which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. You know what it's like? You're in a dark room. You bump into something. That happened to me this morning. I'm doing my best, trying to be quiet. I'm usually up a lot earlier than everybody else. And I literally walked into something that I was convinced wasn't there. And immediately I think, probably should have turned the light on. 
Peter is saying here, you do well to pay attention to the Word of God, which is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It truly is. And yet, what do we want? We want a euphoric experience. We want God to zap us with some amazing emotional enticement. What is the Word of God sufficient for or profitable for? Go, go with me for a moment to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And I won't read the whole thing, but here are some things from Psalm 19 that we know the Word of God is, in fact, sufficient for reviving the soul. That's verse 7. What is that? What is that? Reviving the soul. It's salvation. It's the making of a dead man into an alive man. It's giving the heart of flesh and taking away the heart of stone. That works by the Word of God. You know that from the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, from the end of James 1. The Word of God implanted in your souls that's able to save you, James says. Peter said it's uh, by the imperishable, not the perishable, but the imperishable Word of God by which you are saved. He says uh, back to Psalm 19 verse 7, it makes wise the simple. You ever feel like you just can't get your hands, your mind around things spiritually? That's just, just too hard to understand. It takes work. It takes spirit-filled effort with guidance from others who would do the same. It gives joy to the heart. You ever been sad? That's a silly question, right? And what is discipleship really about? It's about growing in conformity to the person of Christ via a mutual effort in the Word of God, bringing joy to the human heart that experiences immense and indescribable difficulty. I've been through that. You've been through that. You know, there have been times in our lives, Sir Kimberly and me, where, where we've, we've said, you know, what, what do we do? How will we overcome this? How will we experience any kind of legitimate, joyous escape? It's resting in the truths that we know about God. And this is why it's so troubling when you hear someone rejecting the truth about the character of God in the midst of their greatest trial. I preached at the conference uh, through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's my favorite passage in all of Scripture. It speaks of the pastor's relationship with the body, with the flock. And, um, you know, the joy uh, to see someone eagerly receiving the word of God in affliction. I share that joy with Paul the Apostle. That's what Paul spoke of regarding the Thessalonians. It was amidst affliction. He talked about his own affliction, his and Silas's and Timothy's, that in the midst of their affliction that God used them and God showed them to be honest men of integrity, faithful, not deceitful, not committed to personal financial gain. Psalm 19 verse 8 says it gives light to the eyes. It says it's true and righteous. It speaks of its nature, of its ontology, of its essence. It's true. You can't say that really about anything else, not entirely. It's desirable. Like what? Like the honeycomb. Who doesn't like honey? Now, you understand this. If you don't like honey, then you at least like something that's comparable to it. You understand the illustration. The point is that it's desirable, you know? If you've lost your appetite for the Word of God, it's not because the Word of God is not desirable. It is because you have not subjected yourself to it. In it there is warning, verse 11, and keeping it there is great reward, verse 11. Peter says we have all things pertaining to life and godliness and the true knowledge of Him. The Bible is inerrant, it's true, it's authoritative, it's clear, 
It's all of those things because it is, in fact, from God. And the way you want to think about this, practically speaking, is that in the same way that your word is from you, God's word is from him. Why does it matter? You know? Isn't there some way around this? Isn't there some other way to enjoy life and to experience the blessings of life and to avoid the difficulties that come from rejecting the Word of God? Isn't there another way? Well, no, there's not. Because this and this alone is from the Word of God. As you consider God's Word, the things that God's Word says about itself, the things that God says about His Word, He says about nothing else. So God's children... Settle for nothing less than the God-breathed Scripture. Men, those of you who are called to shepherd the flock, there is that desire, that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 desire to shepherd the flock. Acknowledge that He has given you his word by which you may be and really must be adequately trained for every good work, for teaching, for reproving, for correction, for training in righteousness because the people of God need it. If there's anything that might produce momentary division between me and another shepherd, momentary division, it would be that in my perception a man is not faithfully leaning upon and resting in and depending upon the Word of God as he shepherds the flock. And sometimes that momentary division is just what's necessary to show ultimate unity. But we do, in fact, lean and rest on the Word of God exclusively. Men, God's people need you to believe that the Bible is sufficient, that it is exactly enough for you to be equipped for ministry, to equip them for Ministry, Ephesians 4, that's what we do, right? That's why you're here right now in this very moment. You're here to be equipped. You're not here to get recharged, although that happens. You're here to be equipped. You're here to be able to walk out and go, man, I understand it better. I'm moved. I'm motivated. I'm strengthened. I love Christ more, and I'm equipped now better to help people love Christ more. So I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to actually subject myself to the commands of it. I'm going to repent where I have disobeyed. You know? And you're going to ask somebody to hold you accountable to that instead of pretending that you've been doing it, if that's what you've been doing. Settle for nothing less, God's children, than the God-breathed Scripture, profitable, sufficient for every Everything in your life, it's sufficient for your teaching. It's sufficient for your reproof. It's sufficient for your correction, and it is sufficient for your training in righteousness. All for the glory of Christ, who is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And He, the Word, says, come unto me. I'm gentle. I'm gentle. Cast your anxieties upon me as I care for you. Do you see yourself obeying those commands when you read your Bible? When you sit under sound teaching, do you see yourself? Do you imagine that, man, I'm being faithful, I'm being obedient to that command. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden in your legalism. You see yourself doing that when you read the Bible? You commit it to memory? You engage in working through a study guide? He says, I'm gentle. Come unto me, and in no way will I cast you out. In Psalm 119, verse 50, there's a very short statement that's mind-blowing that David would make this statement, that he would say this. And it ought to be convicting, but it ought to be encouraging for you and me. 
if it's not at all true of us, it should be very convicting. And if it is somewhat true, we should be encouraged and we should engage in this practice all the more. David says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. So let me ask you, what's your comfort source? Is it food? Is it a particular person? Now let me qualify that by saying that's not wrong. You know that, right? God gave us those things for our pleasure, for his glory, for our good. But what is the primary source of your hope? And you say, well, I hope it's Jesus. The only way you know whether or not it actually is Jesus is if you find delight in his word. Not reading about his word so much, not reading about him so much, but engaging and worshiping in and resting in him as you drink down the pure milk of the word as does an infant. Your heart is rejoiced by it. Your mind is strengthened. Your thoughts are clarified. The simplicity of your mind is replaced with wisdom. God is glorified and you're useful. And then one day, you die. And you can look back and say, Lord, thank you for how you helped me to store up treasure in heaven by resting in the all-sufficient word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, we ask that you'd help us to rejoice even now in him. Your word says so much about your word, we've only scratched the surface. But we ask that our time together would, in fact, be a time of great worship, spirit-filled rest in him, what he has accomplished, that he who is the word would be exalted as we sing the word, knowing that it is, in fact, producing in us by way of teaching, by way of reproof, by way of correction, and by way of training in righteousness, the being equipped that we might be useful to see the lost come to know him and rest in his forgiveness and in his resurrection for victory over sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen.